Well, good morning. If you're visiting with us, welcome to Trinity Church Spokane Valley. I am one of the elders here. My name is Jeremy. I have the privilege of bringing us uh, God's word this morning. I don't know if many of you have plans this afternoon, but if you do, I'm glad those didn't interfere with you being here this morning. Because today we are looking at one of the most pivotal and important chapters in the Bible that shapes how we understand a lot of God's plan of redemption. It also helps us understand the whole story of the Bible. It gives us an understanding of who Jesus is, what he came to do, and it is inseparably, which is why uh, what we know about Jesus is inseparably linked to this chapter. It's also a Important to know, and I hope I make this clear today, that this chapter doesn't stand alone. It's situated in Genesis alongside other chapters that inform how we should understand it. Today we will focus our attention on Genesis 15, and we'll do that now. We'll start by reading God's Word together, so if you please stand for the reading of God's Word. you read along silently in your own hearts as I read aloud. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, 
the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Sovereign Lord, you, in your graciousness, have acted. And in your gracious act, you have spoken to us in your Son. You have spoken to us through your word. I ask, Father, that you would guide my words this morning so that you and your salvation would be made clear. I ask that you would send your spirit to empower your word, to open our ears and soften our hearts as your word is read and preached. And may you be glorified in all that we do and say, in all that we believe and hope. Amen. Well, we look at this chapter, and one of the themes of our heritage comes to mind, faith alone. Faith alone. What I want to say to you is that faith alone does not save. (gasps) Did I really say that? Don't kick me out yet. Faith alone in Christ alone is what saves us. One of the foundational truths of the Christian gospel is that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. We hold that our works are incapable of saving us and rather they stack up against us as evidence to condemn us. I like to quote a saying of Jonathan Edwards which he says that the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. When we become aware of our sin, though, we can become afraid. It can make us afraid of the consequences. It can hinder our trust in God. It can cloud our judgment of who God is. And the effect of sin on this world can also make us afraid of what's going on in the world and what we'll face in the future. All of these fears come when we fail to look at who God is and what he's accomplished. Sometimes when we're faced with these fears, we look to the gifts or the promises instead of the one who promises. We fear losing these gifts or promises because we don't remember what we should about the one who makes those promises. So we're going to give our attention to the one who makes those promises in Genesis 15. Genesis 15 has a very straightforward structure. And seeing this structure is important for understanding and locating the driving points for this portion of Scripture. Genesis 15 can be broken down into two parts, each corresponding to the other. The first part is verses 1 through 6, and the second part is verse 7 through the end. If you'll notice, and if you notice while we read it, each section begins with God revealing himself in some way to Abram. Also, what he's doing for Abram. And then Abram brings a question. This question could even be considered a complaint. And then God responds to Abram. It seems, though, that verse 6 acts as a hinge between the two sections because it is only at the end of the first section, at verse 6, where we see a response from Abram and what God counts to him. Additionally, the declaration that God made a covenant in verse 18 is distinct for that part of the second section. Everything that God reveals about himself is what Abram believes in, and it is that faith in him that counts as righteousness. In the same way, the covenant is made in relation to all of the promises. This helps us to see the main idea of the passage and also the main idea that I want to bring to you this morning, 
is that you are counted righteous by faith in our covenant-making God. You are counted righteous by faith in our covenant-making God. This morning, we're going to look at three covenant promises that reveal who God is and why we should believe in Him. One, He is the God who promises a dynasty through a son. Two, He is a God who promises a domain in a land. And three, He is a God who promises deliverance through His own life. Just in case you didn't notice, all three of those promises are associated with the letter D. That's the result of many years of seminary training. (laughs) I also used a thesaurus, but they're also helpful for memory. So dynasty, domain, deliverance. So first, God is a God who promises a dynasty. In Genesis 15, verses 1 through 5, God graciously reminds Abram of his promise about being the father of a multitude. In other words, he has promised that he is going to be the head of a dynasty. Abram was counted righteous by believing in the covenant-making God who promised an heir, who promised a dynasty. So let's remind ourselves before we move on of the context that Genesis 15 finds itself in. After creating a good world that God made for humanity, he made mankind in his image to be his son, priest, kings. But man rebelled, choosing to follow the advice of the serpent to determine what is right and wrong on their own hearts and doubt God's goodness. From then on, we see corruption and death filling the earth. And in Genesis 6, the story narrows down to Noah, a man who found favor in the eyes of the Lord, who was considered righteous, blameless, and walked with God. God directs him to build an ark to which he obeys and does that, thus saving his family alone from the destruction that God brought on the entire world. But the sin of man is still present. Noah gets drunk, lies naked in his tent, and his son Ham sees him and shames him by telling his brothers, bringing a curse upon Canaan, his son, while Noah blessed the other sons. From then on, Noah's family is fruitful and multiplies. And in Genesis 10, we see many nations descending from Noah's sons, but instead of spreading across the earth to spread God's glory across the earth, they build a city to make a name and to glorify themselves. God then brings judgment on this city by confusing their languages and divides the people across the earth. So then Moses, the author of Genesis, gives us a line of descendants from Adam, Seth, the son of Seth, or Adam, son, Seth, all the way down to a man named Abram. In Genesis 12, God calls Abram to go to a land that he did not know and makes this promise to him in Genesis 12. He says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From that point, we see a mixture of faithful obedience and fearful disobedience. And over the course of maybe 10 years, Abram's faith has both been tested and refined while God graciously preserves him and continues to hold out his promises to him. After the battle recorded in Genesis 14, Abram still has neither a son nor a land to call his own. In fact, after this battle, he may have started to fear a little for his own life like he did in Genesis 14, or excuse me, Genesis 12, when he went to Egypt but this fear is probably for a different reason. 
After all, he just went to battle with several kings, some powerful nations that he drove out of the land in his attempts to rescue Lot. He may be thinking then rather inherit this land, he's going to be driven out of it at best or killed at worst. And this all brings us to chapter 15. This chapter begins with the word of the Lord coming to Abram. And what is that word to him? Do not fear. All the promises of this chapter are meant to alleviate the fear of the consequences of Abram's sin or even the actions that he did to protect others. The first thing God promises is to be a shield, to be a protector. God also promises that his reward will be very great. Now, if you have an NIV or the King James, the way this is translated is that it indicates that God himself will be his reward, to be Abram's reward. The Hebrew construction can go either way. So ESV, New American Standard, they have that his reward will just be very great. Abram has certainly received something very great by receiving the Lord, but the reward here seems to be tied to his reward being very great because of the way this is structured. God makes this promise, but Abram is questioning, what about the promises you've already made? See, in verses 3 and 4, look at it. Abram shares his complaint. He says, what will you give me? You've not given me any offspring. This man, Eliezer of Damascus, is going to be my heir. How is that a promise to me? I want to point out that even in this complaint, Abram is expressing a belief in who God is. He addresses God as the Lord God, which I actually like the way that the NIV renders it, saying, Sovereign Lord. Lord, if you have, if you have a Bible that says Lord God, you'll see that God has got little caps, right? And the ESV, for example, that has Lord God or sovereign, NIV's got sovereign Lord, Lord is in small caps. Those both indicate to us that it's translating or rendering for us the divine name of Yahweh. So sovereign Lord is a good translation because the Lord that fronts God is reflecting his rulership, his majesty, his might, his mastery. When Abram addresses God this way, he's showing that he not only believes that God possesses heaven and earth, which is in the blessing that we saw with Melchizedek in chapter 14, but that he rules everything absolutely, and there is nothing that God cannot do. He's appealing to God as the one who is sovereign about keeping his promises. But just like everyone else, just like us, his profession with his lips is often mixed with unbelief with fear. Remember, he's been waiting for some time now. It takes us a few minutes to, to read from Genesis 12 to 15, but it, probably a decade has gone by. And he has seen what he sees as threats to the promises that God has made, and he has not yet seen a resolution. So God gives him something to strengthen his faith. Look at verse 4. Abram tells Eliezer, Tells, God tells Abram, sorry, that Eliezer is not his heir, but his very own son will be his heir. God makes very clear that the one who comes out from his own body will be his heir. And then God takes him outside to give him a visual aid to help him understand just what God is promising. And this visual aid was the vastness of the stars of heaven. 
The innumerable stars, all of which were placed by God in the sky, served as the reassuring evidence that Abram needed to continue to trust in God. Abram's fear is alleviated, being shown what the sovereign Lord is capable of. If he can make all of these stars, he can certainly produce for me a son. And Abram believes the Lord, and it is counted to him as righteousness. I want to note a couple of things. We're going to come back to this verse later. But before we move on, Abram believed the Lord. The verb believed here, this is not the first time that Abram believes. The verb has the form that indicates an ongoing or continuous action. So what is being reported here is that Abram continues to believe. He's continuing to believe like he did from the beginning when God called him. And additionally, Abram's belief is trust in the Lord. It's really clear that his belief is rooted in God himself. Abram didn't just believe that God was telling the truth. He didn't just believe that God was going to keep his promises. He was entrusting himself to God, the one who had revealed himself. He was resting in him. And this is what found him as righteous. Abram saw himself as helpless, but he looked to the one who could keep and preserve his life, his heritage, and a deliverance. But he lived in the real world, right? He faced dangers and temptations, and just like you and me, he needed to be reminded of who God is and what he was going to do for him. Though Abram didn't come to see the fruition of this multitude in his own life, we have. Abram saw his son Isaac and probably Jacob, his grandson, but he did not see the multitude. But we know how the story goes. Jacob, excuse me, Abram follows Isaac. Isaac fathers Jacob. Jacob fathers 12 sons who become a multitude of people. So multitudinous, multitudinous, I didn't write that down. In Exodus 12, 37, when the people of Israel, the, the descendants of Jacob, are leaving, Exodus 12, 37 says that about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. So over a million people. When we read this from a New Testament perspective, we see that that promise is not just about the nation of Israel. Ultimately, those descendants lead then and spread from Christ himself. In Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul tells the church that those who believe in Jesus are the sons of Abraham. He also connects the promise of offspring to being counted righteous by faith. In Galatians, Paul is rebuking the church there because they're relying on works of the law. They're relying on doing what they think needs to be done in order to be right with God. And he's telling them that they've received the Spirit. That gift is something that shows that they are already right with God. And how did they receive the Spirit? Not by works of the law, but by faith. And he says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The promise of a seed... And Abram's righteousness are then connected explicitly in Galatians 3, 7, saying, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. As Paul moves on, he connects the promise of offspring to Jesus Christ specifically. 
saying in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. It is in Christ, and through Christ, and to Christ, that this promise comes. The dynasty that is promised to Abram is fulfilled in Jesus, and it is fulfilled in every single person who believes. So Abram's promise of a multitude is not just his family by descent, but it is every single one of us here who has turned in trusting faith to Jesus Christ. For most of us who live in or near the city, we can look outside and see a few stars at night. We'll probably see enough to make out the constellations. But if you go further out, into, out from town, perhaps to the Perines, and look up in the night sky, you're going to see a whole lot more. It's estimated that there's over 100 million stars or 100 billion stars just in our galaxy. Now, Abram, of course, didn't see all of those with the naked eye. But the point is that what he saw was tremendous, innumerable, countless. And if God could put all those in the sky, he can certainly bring a sun, right? And we think about all of these wonderful things that God has made, the stars in the sky, but the alls all fade from view when the sun comes and shines in the sky. All of the stars are washed away. And that's exactly what we need to be thinking about when we think about what God has promised because Jesus Christ has appeared, the one who has become the one offspring who will bring salvation. Genesis 15 begins with God telling Abram not to fear. And like I said, Abram was probably fearing death. Some of you may be sitting here familiar with the fear of facing death, of fearing sickness, fearing troubles with your own body, facing circumstances in this world that are outside of your control. Death is outside of our control. Jesus addressed fear of death in the Gospels. In fact, not fearing death and believing are tied together in Mark 5 with the ruler of the synagogue whose daughter had died. Before she had died, Jesus was summoned by the synagogue ruler to come and heal her. Jesus promised, Jesus is the promised offspring to come and defeat death. He has become our shield against the curse of sin. So if you're here this morning and afraid because of the frailty of your body, because of the impending reality of death, even, even if it's a death that's not your own, someone that you love. And I don't want to be crass or insensitive, but I want you to remember that death is not the end. The end has been provided for us in Jesus Christ. You need to look to Christ and believe in him. He will restore you and he will resurrect you. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15 tells us very nicely that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He has come to free us from that fear. Just as Abram was feared, freed from the fear of his own impending death and losing the inheritance by God reminding him again of the promise that he had made. And Abram was counted righteous by believing that, by believing in him who promised that heir, who promised a, design, a dynasty, a dynasty that outlives death, that outlives the grave, 
a dynasty that is in Jesus Christ. And when we believe in him also, we are counted righteous. So that's our first point. Our God is a God who promises an heir, a dynasty. The second point is that God promises a land or a place of dominion. God promises a domain. Abram believed in the God who made a covenant promise of a domain and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abram was counted righteous by believing in the God who made a covenant promise of a land. A domain is a place, a land over which rule or authority is exercised and as we move to Genesis 15, we see the Lord speaking to Abram again. In this section, we see a covenant promise to Abram about the land. God promises not only a dynasty, but a land, and we trust in that sovereign God. But the way that God reveals himself is really interesting. Verse 7 begins by saying, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, we need to remember that the first audience of this book was Israel, probably in their desert, desert wilderness wanderings. The Israelites have just been rescued out of Egypt. And this introduction of the Lord to Abram, of I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, would have immediately triggered their memory of when God made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, when he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Looking back at this account in Genesis, the Israelites would see why God had brought out Abram. God says to Abram that he brought him out of Ur to give him this land to possess. The land he promised in chapters 12 and 13, he reaffirms here again. The chain of the conversation continues like it did in verses 1 through 6 with Abram asking God a question about this promise. And this time he asks, how am I to know that I shall possess it? But the similarities between the first section and the second section are disrupted here. God's response now is, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now a lot of ink has been spilt trying to explain why these animals. But Moses doesn't spill a lot of ink here, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it either. But I am going to tell you what Moses doesn't say that God told Abraham what to do with these animals. He just knows. He just knows. In verse 10, we see that Abram gets them, and he cuts them in half and lays each side against the other. He knew what this was for. In the ancient Near East, the time that all of this was taking place, and probably for a period of over 1,500 years, a practice like this very one was a common one for very serious commitments. And here's the way it was practiced. When two parties were making a covenant, which is what this is, or more literally, when they were cutting a covenant, they would slaughter animals, cut them in half, lay them on either side of each other, and in the path in the middle, there would be a trail of blood. Gruesome picture. By doing this, they were in effect, well, they would walk through these pieces that were cut apart. And by doing this, they would be saying in a very dramatic gruesome and horrifying way that if I don't uphold my end of this relationship, may I be like these animals. That was a common practice across multiple cultures of having this covenant agreement 
that I will suffer death if I don't uphold my end of the deal. Now, Abram apparently was ready to make this promise. He was so committed to the purpose of this covenant that he was driving away the birds of prey. But then something interesting happens. Look at verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now, I want you to put your Bible memory caps on for a moment. When was the last time in Genesis that a deep sleep fell on someone from the Lord? Adam. Why? To make Eve. God puts Adam to sleep to take a rib to make Eve, and after the woman is formed, God brings her to the man, and a marriage is celebrated. And I don't think it's a mistake that Moses points out this detail to make us think about what kind of relationship is being formed here. Because God does the same thing by referring to himself as the husband of Israel. This covenant ceremony is creating a new type of relationship with Ab Abram and his posterity. Jumping ahead to verse 17, we read something else a little unusual. While it is dark and the deep sleep is on Abram, while he is out cold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces of the cut up animals. Now this, if you're new to the Bible, this may seem a little weird to you, but for the Israelites who received this, it would have been perfectly clear. In their own experience, the smoking fire would have been a picture of God's manifestation of his glory. As they're wandering through the wilderness, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire is leading Israelites through the wilderness. When they came to Mount Sinai, fire and smoke came down on the mountain in such a way that they knew without a doubt that God was present there. And Moses, when he was first exposed to the Lord, a flaming fire in a bush appeared to him. The association of smoke and fire was a clear picture of God's visible and physical manifestation, if we can put it that way, but it was clear that God was present in this place at this time for the ceremony. Genesis 15:18 says, "On that day the Lord made or cut a covenant with Abram." And with this covenant, God is promising to give the land to Abram's offspring. It's not just the land that God is committing himself to. It's a promise of descendants as well. The promise of offspring is tied to it because you can't have dominion over a land without a people to have dominion over it. But what is most striking about this ceremony? is that Abram does not play an active role in it. God is promising to bring death upon himself if this does not come about. What's important for Abram to hear also is that he should not expect to see this in his lifetime. He's told explicitly in Genesis 15:3 that the offspring will be sojourners in a land not theirs for 400 years, right? They're going to be servants, and we find out later this is Egypt. And you, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in good old age. So his descendants are going to be sojourners for 400 years, and he's going to be dead. So the answer to question, Abram's question in verse 8, how will he know that he was going to possess it? Well, he knows because God is faithful. God has made a covenant promise. He might not see it in his own lifetime, but he knows it's going to happen. We see something close to this happening in the time of Solomon, where the, the control of Solomon reaches as far as these borders 
but he, they don't possess it. So how do we understand this promise of this land? Well, some have held that this promise is fulfilled spiritually through the church and that Jesus' reign is over the whole earth through his people. Others hold that there's still a future fulfillment for the people of physical or national Israel, citing Romans 11. But the promise of a land for God's people is not limited to the 50,000 square miles or so that connects Europe, Asia, and Africa. As I mentioned a few moments ago, the Lord Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the promised heir to Abram. And Abram is presented as a new Adam here. God has started again with the command to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 12. This looks back to the blessing that was put on Adam and Eve. The same time looks ahead to how it will be expanded to include the whole earth as the people of God are gathered from across the globe. In light of the promises and the nature of the fulfillment of Christ and his people, God is upholding his promise. You don't have to turn there, and I'm not going to turn there right now either, but Hebrews 11, 8 through 16 is helping, helpful for helping us understand this, especially how the people considered themselves exiles and how they were looking forward to a heavenly country. This heavenly country will finally and fully be realized in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns. And this worldwide Garden of Eden will be the place where God's people rest secure. All causes of sin, of pain, suffering are no longer to be found. This is the land that we look forward to. And we know that we can look forward to it as well because it is fulfilled in Christ, because he is the one who is to inherit it, and he is the one who is going to bring it. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond how do we apply what we hear about the land promise? Remember that God gave this promise in part to alleviate Abram's fear, to reassure him of who he was and his promises. So when we think about a land, when we think about a place, sometimes we get caught up in the fears of where am I going to be in five years, in 10 years? Is my retirement going to hold? Will I still have a place to live? Just little questions about our personal security because of the things that we surround ourselves with. But God is a God who always provides. He might not provide it in the way that we're expecting. He may have us suffer losses of various kinds, but God is always the one who is going to be with us. He is always the one who's going to provide for us. And ultimately, he will provide for us a kingdom that is eternal when we rest in it with his son. Sometimes it's also a matter of waiting. We sang about it this morning. We read about it. Where we ache over the agonies of sin in our own hearts or the effects of sin on this world. And we wonder, how can we keep on keeping on? How can we keep on trusting? How can we face the troubles of this life over and over again? Are you ready to give up or are you persevering in faith? You need to remember what God has promised to you, just like he did to Abram. Trust in that God will take care of you. Abram was counted righteous, and so are we by believing the covenant-making promises that God made. He promised an heir, he promised a dynasty, and we are counted righteous just like him by trusting in the one who keeps these promises. And lastly, we're counted righteous by believing in the God who gives the promise of deliverance.
Within this same episode where God promises a covenant to give the land to Abram's offspring, God speaks of an intervening period that we talked about where they're going to be afflicted in a foreign land for 400 years. But with this announcement of suffering also comes a promise of judgment and deliverance because God is a delivering God. And when we trust the God who delivers, he counts us righteous. Again, underneath the, the call to, God, to Abram not to fear in verse 1, there was certainly that immediate cause of fear in the kings that he drove out in chapter 14. But he possibly was also fearful of the consequences of his own sinful acts that he's committed since God first revealed himself to him. Remember in Genesis 12, he lied about his wife and she was taken into Pharaoh's house. He's begun to learn about God's judgment against sin by driving out and conquering these other nations, these other kings. He was probably becoming even more and more aware of the sin that was sitting in his own heart, losing confidence in his ability to follow God. He's becoming more and more aware that he deserves God's judgment, and he knows that he needs a deliverer. We get a hint of this theme of deliverance in verse 1 when God tells Abram that he is his shield. The same root for shield here is the same root for delivered in 1420 when Melchizedek says, Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. In this case, the enemies were delivered into Abram's hand, signifying victory over the enemies, but this victory was from the Lord. When God says he's going to be Abram's shield, he says he's going to be his protection against his enemies. You can also see the deliverance in verse 14. After the Israelites are in a foreign land, God says he will judge that nation that they serve. He will bring them out. He will rescue them from slavery and oppression from Egypt. And the Israelites would have picked up on this right away, knowing that they had been delivered. He also says they're going to come out with great possessions in their victory. We see this in Exodus 12, 36, when they came out, they asked the Egyptians for anything they wanted, and the Egyptians gave it all. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Israel experienced this firsthand. They were not only rescued from slavery in Egypt, but they were protected by God when Pharaoh pursued them to the Red Sea from enemies that surrounded them and came after them as they were on their way to the Promised Land. The hope of deliverance is scattered across the pages of the Bible, especially these opening chapters. And this theme is there so that the people of God would see and know that God is always at work to deliver his people. It's become abundantly clear to the reader of the Bible that above all things, delivery is needed the most because of our sin. The promise of deliverance is tied to the promise of an offspring and a land that's all encompassed in this covenant ceremony. So I pointed to it earlier about how God alone was the one who walked through these pieces. Now some people will look at this covenant, this Abrahamic covenant, and call it a unilateral covenant. Unilateral means that only one party, in this case God, is responsible for upholding it. And unfortunately, this is not necessarily the best way to think about this covenant. 
this covenant is expanded upon in Genesis 17. We're going to look at Genesis 17 in a couple of weeks, but just take a quick look at Genesis 17, verses 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. It may look like God's making a new covenant here, a different covenant here because of the word make, but that's a different word than the word that's make in Genesis 15. He's giving it. He's establishing it. He's upholding the covenant that he had previously made that he had cut in Genesis 15. The that indicates a purpose tied to a condition. The same idea of a condition is clearly, out, clearly pointed out in verse 14 of chapter 17. But what I want you to see and I, what I want you to understand that in every circumstance of a covenant, there are conditions. Those conditions tell us that in every covenant, there needs to be a faithful covenant partner. Now, there still is a unilateral element to the covenant that's cut in Genesis 15 because only God passes through the pieces to say, may death happen to me if this covenant is not upheld. After the requirement that blamelessness is required to walk with him, we eventually come to Genesis 20, what does Abram do? Once again, he sells a, or gives Sarah away, lying about her as his sister. Neither Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the nation of Israel, any of the kings who followed, who represented Israel, proved themselves blameless. All fell short. All violated the covenant. All need a deliverer. None of them were covenant partners that were faithful. The need for a deliverer has been made clear since Genesis 3.15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In that verse, we see that there's going to be a perpetual enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, but we also see that the seed of the woman will at some point bruise or crush the serpent's head. That's a picture of defeat, but that defeat will not come without a cost to the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman will suffer a strike to the heel, and if those, those who are familiar with ancient warfare know that a strike to the heel is a strike that is a strike of defeat because they're unable to fight, they're unable to run. But this came to be understood as what the statement from Genesis 3.15 informed was that a man, a human, a seed of the woman, an offspring, would bring about the defeat of the serpent. That promise came in the midst of Adam and Eve's failure and pointed to a future hope of deliverance from the serpent and what he had brought. But who would be worthy enough to do this? The idea of a conquering Messiah comes from this idea of a man who will come to crush the serpent. But now we have this covenant ceremony where God says, let death come to me if the conditions of this covenant are not upheld. 
So the Israelites, and we should feel it too, the amazing tension that's happening here. For those under this old covenant, the question is, why would God do this? For someone's failure, how could God do this? How can he be glorified in this? But for us, we have the benefit of having the rest of God's revelation in our hands. And we know exactly why and how God carried this out. The seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David came in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. The promised offspring, the one who would be heir, came to suffer. And he was told by the father that he would be king, but first he would suffer for his people. This is recorded in Hebrews 2, 8 through 10. He says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, that is Jesus. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This Jesus, in his crucifixion, bore the penalty for his faithless covenant partner. He bore the penalty so that the conditions of the covenant could be fulfilled. And then he was raised from the dead, showing that he was the faithful covenant partner. Jesus is the heir of the promises. And by faith in him, we are counted righteous. This brings us back to Romans 4. In Romans 4, 3 through 8, Paul writes, For what does the scriptures say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is our doctrine of justification. A forensic, judicial ruling has been made. A relationship was formed, just like a marriage covenant. Laws were given to define what that relationship would look like, and we have broken that relationship and the laws in it. But God justifies the ungodly. He has justified you if you have looked to Christ in faith. He has not just declared you innocent, but righteous, and he will not count your sin against you if you have believed in him. He counts you righteous. Every one of you, every one of us, are and have been unfaithful covenant partners. Do you fear what God thinks of you because of this? Do you fear that you will face him in judgment or that he's displeased with you? You only need to turn to Christ in faith. Do you feel that you do not know Jesus Christ? I don't doubt that some of you here this morning don't know him, that you have not trusted in him. 
But I want you to know that he has revealed himself through the writings of his prophets and apostles, and his sure and steady word has been given to you so that you would know him and believe in him. We are called to grow in our knowledge of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, to believe in him and to receive grace by faith, to receive salvation, believing that you can be counted righteous apart from your works and be saved. God is a covenant-making God. He has made a covenant promise of an heir, of a land, and of a salvation. He is a God who gives a dynasty, a domain, and deliverance. He made this covenant with Abram as head and representative of a people who ultimately failed to represent him and bring blessing to the nations. But that record failure had one exception, Jesus Christ God, the Son incarnate, the God who took on flesh, who took our sin upon himself and was raised from the dead to show that he was victorious and he was faithful. He fulfilled the terms of the covenant and he bore the consequences of that broken covenant so that we could have peace with him. Let's pray. Father, we give you great, unspeakable praise because of who you are. Our minds and hearts cannot come close to comprehending your majesty, your wonder, your sovereign hand, your infinite control, and how in your goodness that you could save sinners to to love us in the way that you have shown your love to us. And Lord Jesus Christ, how you have suffered the death that we deserve so that we could be made right with you. I pray for everyone here this morning, believer and unbeliever, that this truth would penetrate our hearts so much so that our lives would reflect the love that has been poured out to us, that we would trust you because you are faithful, that we would not live in fear either of our sin or the effects of sin in this world, the uncertainty of futures because you have given us a certain future and a certain hope. You are going to bring us home. You are the one that we look to. We give you praise and we give you thanks because of the work that you have done. And we entrust ourselves to you. Amen.